Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 71. After Hours with Marilyn R. Pukila. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Matt, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. Earlier this season, we've been eavesdropping on the correspondence of a senior demon, Screwtape, to his nephew, Wormwood. But we're now halfway through Screwtape's toast to the Tempter's Training College. However, today is a Thursday, and it's therefore an after-hours episode. And today we're joined by Marilyn R. Pukila, known to many Tolkien fans simply as Marilyn the Librarian. Marilyn, welcome to Pints with Jack. It's a pleasure and a delight to be here. Thank you. Now, would you mind introducing yourself to the listeners if they don't listen to every single Tolkien podcast that's out there? <laughs> sure. I am Librarian Emerita from Colby College, where for 35 years I taught courses on J.R.R. Tolkien, Women in Myth and Fairy Tale, and Religious Responses to Harry Potter, which resulted in my book, The Skill of a Seeker, Rolling Religion and Gen 9-11. Last fall, I was taken on as a contract researcher for the Prancing Pony podcast, which has just been fantastic. <laughs> I'm also pleased to be a regular correspondent on the Tolkien Road, which is where people may hear the name Marilyn the Librarian, and very much enjoy what John and Greta do. Recently, I had my debut as a voice actor for a couple of small parts on another podcast, The Music of Middle Earth, Jordan Rennell's. I was privileged to live in Wales and in York for a year each time, and I've studied both Welsh and Finnish, which is excellent for Tolkien's Elvish languages. Wow. And in 1991, I spoke to the York Area Study Group Considering Women and the Episcopacy about feminist spirituality. York is also where I joined the Society of Friends, known as Quakers, and I'm currently clerk of ministry and council for my meeting here in central Maine. Till We Have Faces is one of the texts that I taught in the Women in Myth and Fairy Tale class as one of several retellings of the psyche story, which is itself a version of the beast husband tale type. And the foundational question of the class is, to what extent does myth shape culture? And to what extent does culture shape myth? Hmm. That kind of reminds me of the argument over dictionaries. Should the dictionary tell you how words are used or how they should be used? Indeed. I'm a complete authoritarian, so I think you can guess my answer on that one. Why am I not surprised? <laughs> and you've studied Welsh. The only thing I think I can vaguely recall is uh, Daffid Dewey. Is that how you say my name is David? I've forgotten most of it except the pronunciation, but that sounds good. So go with it. Okay, I'm, I'm going with it. I'll just tell people it's selfish. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it would be a good idea to explain how you and I connected. You first sent me a message in July last year as we were wrapping up Tolkien Month. Uh-huh. And you stuck around for Till We Have Faces. And <laughs> we were working through that through the season. And you and I continued to correspond. It was then that I found out that you weren't just Marilyn, you are Marilyn the librarian. Uh-huh. And you also had many opinions and thoughts about myth, Lewis, Tolkien, till we have faces. So I thought you just had to come on the show and we're just going to talk it all out. And after I dropped the ball a few times, a few life events that got in the way, uh, I'm really pleased that we managed to make this happen. I am too. And it reminds me of um, Niggle's observation to perish. Mm-hmm. Things might have been different, but they could not have been better. <laughs> I love it. I tell my wife that every day. <laughs> <laughs> In 
Now, before we get too deep into discussion, uh, we should get through our standard episode segments. And since we have Marilyn, the librarian, with us today, the quote of the week comes from Surprised by Joy, where Jack describes the school library. The other undisguised blessing of the coal, the college, was the gurney, the school library, not only because it was a library, but because it was sanctuary. And that quotation really echoes in my soul because I had a very similar kind of relationship with the library at my own school. Hmm. Well, I'm thrilled that you chose that because I've always held that idea myself. So I'm glad to know that you did too. Now, for the drink of the week, I am drinking, I think for the first time on the show, Earl Grey. Are you drinking anything, Marilyn? I am. I am drinking Andy Serkis's recipe for golem juice. (laughs) I didn't even know there was such a thing. There is. It's excellent if you are doing a lot of talking. It is uh, chopped up ginger brought to a gentle boil mixed with lemon juice and honey and a little bit of cinnamon added to help smooth it out. Wow. Well, we've got a bunch of new Patreon supporters recently, so we need to toast one of our newest, Kevin L. So if you'll raise your glass, mm-hmm. Kevin, we pray that, despite Lewis's assertion to the contrary for himself, that one day you will find a book long enough and a cup of tea big enough to truly satisfy you. But of course, unless you're in the library, in which case those two things can't happen at the same time since no eating or drinking is allowed. Cheers. Cheers. Nowadays, at least in college libraries, drinks and food are welcome because we know that people will be careful. Wow. That was and we, n- want them to, we want them to feel like the, the library is the college living room. That never happened in my day. Although I was also part of the computer science faculty. And mm-hmm. in most computer science labs, you weren't allowed food or drink, but we were allowed it in ours because they said we were grown ups and we, they expected us to behave like it. Well, there. I would like to say it was fully rewarded, but it wasn't always. (laughs) So, Marilyn, it's been a while since we had a haiku on this podcast, but in our email exchange, I was delighted to hear that you had a haiku to share with us. I do. It's called Oral. Brutal rejection. Radical transformation. Queen and psyche both. I came up with it on one of my daily walks, and the more I sat with it, the more layers I found. It often happens that way. One's own writing may uncover meaning that you didn't know was in you. See, Matt, people love the haikus. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) So let's begin by talking about Tolkien, since your love for Tolkien was one of the first things that I got to learn about you. Uh, You just got off the Prancing Pony digital moot right? Mm -hmm. And for listeners who don't know what a moot is, could you explain what that is? Sure thing. A moot is just simply a gathering. Some may recall from Tolkien, the Antmoot in Lord of the Rings. It's an old English, Anglo-Saxon word meaning an assembly or a gathering of people. So in this case, it was a gathering, a digital gathering of people from around the world who are familiar with the Prancing Pony podcast, who spent a few days of delightful fellowship we heard talks, we played pub quizzes, we played the barrel weight RPG game, and we met up with friends who we never actually met in person, but we met through the podcast. Best kinds of friends. And it was not only my debut in voice acting as a bit part of Keller Brimbor in a one-act soundscape of the Council of Elrond, but I had the time of my life GMing in a role-playing game of the Barrow Downs using somebody else's script. 
Fortunately, I also have a distinct honor of being assisted by the Tolkien professor himself, Dr. Corey Olson, mm. who did all the combat shaming. <laughs> I guess my Quaker nature just didn't rock all the battle stuff. But you got to understand, it's been over 40 years since I did a new, we call it DM in those days, Dungeon Mastering. And things have definitely gotten more complex since then. As I said on more than one occasion, Dag Nevitt, Jim, I'm a storyteller, not a statistician. <laughs> Yeah, I had some friends that were really into those kind of Dungeons and Dragons games. There should be far more math involved than I thought should ever be present in any kind of game. <laughs> uh, just to clarify, so DMing is dungeon mastering and GM is game mastering? Game mastering, yeah. Uh, That's yeah. what it's become now, yeah. yeah. So when we first started talking, you sent me a document with your nine Tolkien themes. Uh, can you explain to the listeners what that was about? Sure, these were a structure that I developed when I first started teaching the class. Um, they are taken largely from the famous letter 131 that Tolkien wrote to Milton Waldman. So I'm looking down the list now and I see titles like The Dangers of Possessiveness, uh, Great Events Are Often Caused by the Small and Weak, and The Need of the Noble and the Vulgar, the Wise and the Simple for Each Other. Uh, and so would you mind picking one or two of those and unpacking them a little bit as you would have done in your course? Sure. So let's look at great deeds are caused by the small and the weak. This is a classic folktale type, the unexpected hero or the reluctant hero, you know, the youngest son or whatever. Wait, I'm the youngest son. Everyone expects <laughs> me to be amazing. I don't know what that's well, about. Exactly. <laughs> In letter 131 to Milton Waldman, uh, Tolkien referred to it as deeds of virtue of the apparently small. So Frodo and Sam are probably the most obvious examples of this. But the designation small or weak often reflects the teller's own perceptions of those qualities. Tolkien referred to Luthien as a mere maiden, even if of elf royalty, reflecting the ideas of his time that women's abilities are quote unquote lesser. And Luthien was a semi-mayar, so it seems to me that I don't think she was really all that small or weak. And of course, she uh, had an awful lot to do to ensure the survival of both herself and Baron and the success of, of their quest to retrieve the Silmaril. Gandalf doesn't usually come to mind at first when we're talking about reluctant heroes, but in Unfinished Tales, he's described as the weakest of the Maiar and also the last one to respond to Manaway's summons to the Maiar to come and serve as Istari. And because Gandalf was reluctant to do this task, he is the classic reluctant hero, even though we usually think of him as rather other than that. And so we come to the need of the noble and wise and the vulgar and simple for each other. Elrond said at the council, small hands do the work because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. The simple are often overlooked. So you have Mary and Eowyn being overlooked by the Nazgul king. So they were able to accomplish what the ancient King Arnor of Arnor could not do and slay the rich king. Mary and Pippin are ennobled by their contact with Theoden and Faramir and with Strider, who becomes Aragorn, and then Elessar. And so when they return to the Shire, not only are they able to deal effectively with the ruffians, but they are also able to be better quote-unquote rulers of their own Shire communities. I don't know to what extent you really consider the Shire having rulers, but <laughs> Pippin was the Thane and Mary was the master of Brandy Hall, so there you are. 
And then Tolkien had the example of his own mother, Mabel, who was a widowed single mother who raised her two sons in Catholicism until she died from poverty-caused untreatable illness, which was diabetes in those days. It wasn't treatable. And he also saw the World War I Batman, by which I don't mean a comic character, but rather <laughs> the servants of the officers. Tolkien saw them as far superior to the officers that they served. And he said in several different instances that he modeled Sam Gamgee after them. And a quote of his I love from the biography by Carpenter was, I've always been impressed that we are here surviving because of the indomitable courage of quite small people against impossible odds. Ah, beautiful. Now, of course, we can't talk about Tolkien without talking about the Peter Jackson movies and the Tolkien biopic from a few years ago. <laughs> and uh, just now you were talking about The Scouring of the Shire, which is my favourite part of the entire book. Uh, and I was gutted they cut it out. Yeah. Uh, what, did, what did you think about the, the Peter Jackson movies and the biopic? Well, I could say a lot of things about the Peter Jackson films <laughs> and about the Tolkien biopic. Though, of course, these are only my own views and opinions, and I don't know how meaningful that will be to your audience. But I would start by following the example of Dr. Tom Shippey, who, in a similar talk, started with Tolkien's own words on the subject, in which he wrote a letter to Forrest J. Ackerman uh, sometime in June of 1958. So Tolkien said, or wrote, the canons of narrative art in any medium cannot be wholly different. And the failure of poor films is often precisely in exaggeration and in the intrusion of unwanted matter, owing to not perceiving where the core of the original lies. And I would shape my observations around those points. Mm -hmm. I'm sure one or two scenes come to your mind. I mean, you mentioned the scouring of the Shire. That was part of the core because for Tolkien, the fight against evil is not confined to one, you know, plane where there's a volcano erupting. It affects us all. And that was why it was so important to him to include the scouring of the Shire. Um, and also, I think, as a reflection of what went on on the so-called home front during both world wars, that there was suffering everywhere. And evil doesn't just have this massive, mighty, one figure that once we can get rid of, we will be free of evil forever. That's just not how it works. But for me, the most devastating example of that was Frodo dismissing Sam on the steps of Pyrthongol. Yeah. And Sam going! <laughs> the core of Lord of the Rings is fellowship and fidelity to one's word. And this was only one instance of that being road roughshod over, and for my mind, the worst. And to me, it's just such a shame because the films were so beautiful in so many regards. The music, the landscape, the visual art, um, the charge that we're hearing at dawn remains in my mind as the finest cinematic achievement I think I will ever see. Mm. And so to have, to my mind, aired so hugely, in the midst of all this amazing, amazing creation was just uh, heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Well, I agree. I don't think it's in character with either of them. The cinematic effect, though, was spectacular because it felt like somebody was just kicking me in the gut repeatedly as you see Sam leave. 
Yeah, but I guess you have to ask what were they trying to achieve with that? Now, according to the um, appendices, you know, where they're talking about the making of the film and all, they said they wanted Frodo to face Sheila alone and then to have Sam come in at the last minute and rescue him. Funnily enough, that sounds an awful lot like the book to me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, Frodo goes racing off alone. Sam gets collared by Gollum mm. and has to then rescue Frodo after Sheila has gotten him. So why did they think they knew better than Tolkien? I don't know. Yeah, it's tough. I can... I think I want to give Peter Jackson a lot of leeway just because he did so much. He got so much else right. Indeed he did. And the challenge of trying to produce, turn those books into movies. I mean, we just saw in The Hobbit how badly it can go wrong. So (laughs) I I kind of just want to to give him a little bit of slack for The Lord of the Rings. Sure. No, I mean, I, I cannot regret that he did it. And the numbers of people who bet those movies brought to Tolkien mm. alone, it seems to me, more than outweigh the you know, the grief that some of us experienced at various moments throughout the films. But um, it could have been so much better. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I say after watching pretty much every single movie. It's like, ah, I could have fixed this. Well, that's true. So a sign of Artemard, I mean, I guess we could say, right? Uh, what did you make of the biopic? Yeah, the biopic was a beautiful film, but... I deeply regretted the virtual absence of any reference to the Catholicism Mm. that was central to Tolkien's life. I just did not understand that. It struck me as overall a very 21st century interpretation of a largely Edwardian man. My favorite scene was Tolkien's conversation with Joseph Wright on Addison Walk. That's my Zoom background, taken (laughs) on the walk by the chair well. You'll understand why it moved me. But it also got to the core of who Tolkien was and why language is at the heart of his profession and his writing and his world building, as we would call it now. I mean, it was fun to watch the scenes of them enjoying the costumes at the backstage. And I'm a big lover of Wagner and and the ring cycle and all that. So, I mean, that appealed to me on a different level. But um, they seemed mostly to be interested in depicting ways in which experiences on the battlefield got translated into his writings. And the early representation of this childhood was a lot of fun, but there were just, there were several things that just didn't ring true for me based upon my own, you know, readings of the biographical material and stuff like that. But the, the absence of Catholicism was just, it was just wrong. It was too much of the central core of his life. It was a central part of his writing, although he very carefully eliminated any obvious cues towards that. And without that, I really don't think you can say you have any kind of understanding of who Tolkien was. Mm. Yeah, I'm willing to give somebody a lot of slack in biopics for changing details, just as long as I feel they've got the heart of it right, which is basically what Tolkien said in that quotation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I you can't just hop, skip, and jump over that. Right, right. Since he described this as a fundamental Christian and Catholic work. so. But once again, I, I kind of enjoyed it. It's like, if this gets people interested in Tolkien, if it gets them to crack open The Hobbit right. or The Lord of the Rings or maybe one of the biographies, fine, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. But I reserve my right to be a pedant and to point out <laughs> the things that I don't like. 
Well, I try not to be a pedant because I find pedantry just does not go well in the classroom, but or didn't go well in the classroom. I'm retired now. But even so, there's a strong temptation, though, most assuredly. Now, in one of your emails, you commented on the You Don't Know Jack episode, which I recorded. It was an introduction to Lewis and really just a collection of some things that the general public typically don't know about him. And you commented on something Tolkien-related, which you hadn't come across before. What was that? Yes, it was the new-to-me knowledge that Lewis disliked the veneration of Mary. And it was a big aha moment for me because, of course, Tolkien had a really strong devotion to the Mary. And so it offered a new window to me on the gradual cooling of their friendship. I've also thought about Tolkien's veneration of Mary in the context of Nienna, one of the Valar, and her similarity to Our Lady of Sorrows. And this got me off onto the idea of Tolkien and mourning, how often grieving shows up in his stories and the connection between joy and sorrow or grieving and healing. And one of these days, I think I really do have to sit down and write about this. <laughs> yeah, I actually read The Silmarillion for the first time this year. So... Oh, well done. Well, it needed to be done. I did it with Caitlin from Tea with Tolkien, her her reading group. And it Mm -hmm. had been long Mm -hmm. put off. But my my introduction to the Valar, it it was long overdue. And (laughs) as someone who's been born and raised Catholic, yeah, I see Mary throughout pretty much any of the female figures. But that's just me. Yeah. Well, one of these days, I really need to, to read up more about Our Lady of Sorrows and to find out more about her specific designation, devotion. I did read, there's a new biography, a recently new biography about Father Francis, mm-hmm. Francis Morgan, who was uh, Anglo-Welsh Spanish. And I think it was his aunt had a statue of Our Lady of Sorrows that she inherited. So at some point I may need to dig into the archives at um, the oratory and see what kinds of records, if any, they had, and was this something that Father Francis had a devotion for, and, um, you know, just follow up those threads and see what we come up with. Well, let's move from Tolkien and talk about myth more generally, and over into the Lewis world of Till We Have Faces. As we know, Lewis took a long walk with Tolkien and Dyson on Addison's Walk, and their conversation helped remove for Lewis, his real final impediment to accepting Christianity. Uh, You want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, I think that Lewis's and Tolkien's mutual love of pagan story and heroism was their strongest bond, and that which first brought them together as friends and not just simply colleagues. And that points to the remarkable conversation on Edison Walk about myths being, quote, lies breathed through silver. And also the concept of escape, recovery, and consolation, which Tolkien identified as the functions of myth. I visited Madeline College and the walk a few years ago, and I was deeply moved to think of that moment and those people. As I said, one of the best bits of the biopic was Tolkien and Joseph Wright with his wonderful, wonderful accent, walking along Addison and talking of trees. And then the flowering of that remarkable poem, Mythopoeia, in response to that walk, which was Tolkien's declaration of our divine right to subcreate because we are made in the image of a maker. We make still by the law in which we're made. The idea of pagan myths being good dreams given to people by God, it seems to me is a major component of Tolia Faces. Hmm, yeah. Uh, Your comment about escape 
and recovery and consolation. Uh, mm-hmm. That took on a new color for me recently when I heard about the Hebrew Hobbit. Yes. The story of these Israeli pilots who got shot down. Wasn't that incredible? They received an English copy of The Hobbit, but some of their friends who were, they were all kept in the same cell, they couldn't read English. So they just started to systematically work through The Hobbit and translate it into Hebrew. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Tolkien himself says that sometimes when you're stuck in a prison, it pays to think and talk about things other than prison walls and prison bars. Yeah. Yeah. No, that I, I just heard that recently, too, and it gave me chills. It was just an amazing, amazing story. Mm. Now, on to Lewis's myth, his myth retold, namely Till We Have Faces. That was a book we were studying on the podcast when you and I began corresponding, and you had many thoughts and feelings. <laughs> yes, um, a lot of them revolve around Joy's influence on the book and resulting issues of gender. And I also have a bit to say about Ungit and embodiment and mystery, the whole question, why must holy places be dark places? As a Quaker, I had the feeling that Lewis struggled with aspects of faith that didn't fall under the intellectual sphere. The reason why the tail psyche has so much resonance with Beauty and the Beast, as I said before, is that they're both based on the same tail type called the Beast Husband. You may know the story East of the Sun, West of the Moon, which is a folktale version of the tail type. And there are many, many beasts in Till We Have Faces. We've got the king, we've got the brute, but the devouring aspect of Ungut, and of course, of Oral herself. Still, while Oral is ugly, she is not brutal. Like the original beast, she's ugly, and she's eventually transformed by love. Her name is Maya, which literally means illusion. Her ugliness is illusion in the end. And interestingly, Maya is also the name of the mother of Hermes, who is the Greek god of, among other things, liars. Hmm. I really see Lewis and Joy having fun with that name and all the different implications for it. Because we know she's an unreliable narrative. Yeah, and people often get upset with my co-host Andrew whenever he says, she's lying to us. And they always want to jump in and defend her. (laughs) Well, I can sympathize with that. She is lying, and I understand why she's lying. And a lot of the times, I don't think she knows she's lying. I think she really believes. And in fact, I find it fascinating that Lewis first encountered this story around the age of 16, and he lived with it for the rest of his life. And he always had the idea of telling the story up to the point of the end of the book. This was before his conversion. And then the second part of the book, I think, is probably contributed to a lot by Joy, because that's where he comes back and in Oral's voice says, I now have to rewrite a lot of what I wrote before. (laughs) And I see that as an image of what Lewis was doing throughout the rest of his life post his conversion. And I think it's important that we're not just one thing or another. We're complex. We're both and. We're many things. So Maya Oral is queen and Psyche, both. And if Psyche hadn't lit the lamp, Oral could not have become whole. So it's a sort of a Felix Culper situation. Definitely. Oh, happy fault. Yes, indeed. And that is somewhat present in the original story, but it, that has a very different feel to it. That's more of a novel. And if the author was pouring out his own bile about Roman culture and he was a devotee of Isis and felt that all the Roman gods were passe. And so once again, culture 
affecting myth mm. as well as myth affecting culture. So Oral tries to drive the woman out of her. And I think it's because her world has told her that she is a failure as a woman. Yeah. In her world, the one thing that women are supposed to do is to be beautiful and to marry and produce children. So I don't think the queen is her false self. You could call it her wounded self. And we need to own our wounds in order to be complete and in order to have them transformed, which I think is what we see happen over the course of time. But she's very resistant to it. She has to be forced to confront these wounds. She is veiling them up. She's covering them up. She doesn't want people to see them. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's only when, mm-hmm. uh, when the situation forces her to actually begin to deal with them that we actually see that. She is, she is an unwilling patient that doesn't actually want to be healed. No, because her world has told her that to be weak is to be dead. And I think now of Ursula Le Guin, weak is women's magic, wicked is women's magic. Weakness was not something she could afford. And to see her wounds and her failures and her flaws could get her killed in her mind, Hmm. which is not a justification for lying. It's a justification for what I see as very human behavior. I think it's important to remember that the queen or all was the greatest ruler Gloam ever had according to her own people, and was beloved by her people. So that can't just be a false self. There's got to be something there more than a devouring. Yes, there was devouring as well. But I think it's really important to remember that she was only about 16 or 17 when all this was going on. Hmm. So there wasn't a lot of maturity there for her to draw upon. She got that later in life. Nor formation all of the good stuff she pretty much got from the fox. Yes. And that was it. And that was lacking in these this other side, these other tools that eventually she would also need. When you're describing her as the greatest queen that Gloam had ever had, and so that it can't all be full self, uh, the, the comparison that popped into my head was that of, say, a, a father or the breadwinner of the family being the most successful CEO that the company has ever had, mm-hmm. but it's at the expense of his family. Mm-hmm. And I think in a similar way... Sure, absolutely. Orwell is driven to greatness, but it's, it is at the expense of a lot of people that she doesn't treat particularly well. Absolutely, and at the expense of herself. Yeah. She doesn't treat herself at all well. And this is one of the things that breaks my heart every time I read it. And I also think this is of some degree a reflection of how Lewis treated himself. Mm. I think and throughout the course of his later life, he felt, I think, a great deal of shame and self, maybe even self-loathing. I shouldn't speak to this because, of course, I haven't read it anywhere and I've never talked to him. But, <laughs> um, you know, some of his early, his early behavior in his youth, I think, as a converted Christian, he found very, very difficult to repent and accept that he was fully forgiven. Mm. And that's, I think, true for a lot of us throughout the course of our lives. And that had a natural outworking insofar as he found it difficult to forgive certain people. I remember one of the very late letters Mm. where he says, you know what, just the other day, I finally realized I've forgiven the schoolmaster. I'm pretty sure it was oldie, but he said, I just suddenly realized that I had forgiven him. (laughs) Probably. Yeah. Well, you know, I can still remember the moment when I took a look inward and said, 
if I've been treating my neighbors, if I've been loving my neighbors the way I love myself for all this time, it's a wonder that they didn't rise up and murder me a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I just don't think you can do the one without doing the other because ultimately we are connected. And I think it's also, it's undergirded by an understanding of A, identity, and B, where that identity is found. Right. And so for the Christian, our acceptance and our value is found in God, made in his image and likeness, mm -hmm. therefore valued and therefore worthy of love. Mm -hmm. Orwell doesn't have that. Right. The gods are distorted. Her father is a mess. <laughs> her family is a mess. And so she she doesn't have that such an easy journey into loving herself or others what possible role model does she have other than psyche and of course psyche is so much younger and she puts herself in the role of caretaker and isn't able to take in the value of the love that psyche is offering she, she puts them in unequal positions mm. rather than if they, she could see themselves on equal footing maybe then she could have been more open and receptive. But it was always essential to her that I, Oral, always know what's best for you, Psyche. Yeah, she always placed herself as the mother. Right. And therefore she actually wasn't able to receive the wisdom that her baby sister could have actually have given her. Exactly, exactly. And that, that paragraph that always chills me. Can we take the time I can actually find sure. the words? Okay. Yeah, go for it. I wanted to be a wife so that I could have been her real mother. I wanted to be a boy so that she could be in love with me. I wanted her to be my full sister instead of my half sister. I wanted her to be a slave so that I could set her free and make her rich. That's got to be some of the most possessive statements of love I've ever heard. And yet what else does she have? What else does she have? The line that really gets me in that is when she said, I would want her to be a slave so that I could free her. Exactly. I want to hurt her so I can be nice to her, free her. And then she is in my debt. Again, it's the dominant subordinate. Yeah. But that is what she has been taught by her world. That's what she knows. What other examples does she have to draw upon? As a then 12-year-old, I think, or even younger. I mean... I think because we hear her voice starting off the novel when she's very old, it's very hard to remember that we are looking at the experiences of a preteen and a teenager. Mm. And I don't know about you, but A, I was a very different person, and B, I didn't have a lot of life experience at that point. So. Oh, yeah. Teenager, I was a mess. And one connection I hadn't made until we were just talking about her wanting to, Psyche to be a slave so she could free her. Mm. She actually does get that opportunity later, not for Psyche, but for the fox. Right. And does she take it? No, no. Even when she does, at least in, in word, she can't do it indeed. Mm. And the fox has enough love for her to accept that, which may or may not be good for Oral, you know? We don't know. Yeah, it may or may not actually be love. <laughs> I think it's far better motivated, but is it actually for Oral's good? Exactly. Because a lot of what the fox taught her really didn't help her that much, did it? <laughs> in the, I mean, in certain key areas that she had to face. Mm. So I've only read a few of the standard biographies of Joy and what Carpenter writes about her in the Tolkien biography and in the Inklings. 
But I did also recently read her collected letters, which, by the way, if you haven't read them, I highly recommend to you and to anybody who's listening. They're really, really fascinating. Mm. I understood better why Lewis fell in love with her exactly. after I read the letters. Yes. Uh, she's She has a hard time getting a really good press from some writers. Well, like Orwell, she's not simple. She's complex. Exactly. And other things about Orwell's experiences jump out at me. Uh, the fear of living with an abusive and alcoholic parent, though in Joy's case it was husband. I'm sure that some of those scenes described come from Joy's very visceral emotional experiences. Um, the dangers of being a woman of royal birth and intelligence and ugliness in a world that had no place for her. And again, Joy's experience, except she wasn't royal. She was greatly gifted, but not in traditionally feminine ways, shall we say? Exactly. Um, the terror of the abused, I don't think we can fully understand that unless we've experienced it ourselves. And the resulting self-loathing. Because if you were abused as a child, you cannot afford the knowledge that the one who has, is supposed to take care of you is the one hurting you. So you come to this conclusion of it must have been my fault. Mm. I must have done something wrong. If only I did this, if only I did that, you know, the scenes of if I fix my hair better or, you know, all this kind of thing. It's putting responsibility on a child that is not that child's responsibility. And it really colors their ongoing life. And I think Joy experienced that too. And then you have the mysteries of divinity, which is something that I think Jack, with his monumental intellect and past experiences of spiritualism and such, seems to have found a challenge for most of his life. And I find myself wondering how Joy's cultural Jewishness possibly influenced her own willingness to let holy places be dark places. I think of her title of her book, Smoke on the Mountain. You know, that doesn't sound very clear and far-seeing and so forth, right? Yeah, and although she had a very profound experience of God, it was in isolation, and then she spent many years following that, trying to understand what had happened. It right. had been a moment of clarity. It had been a mountaintop experience. She mm -hmm. had seen the God of the mountain, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then she had a long time trying to unpack what all of that actually meant. As did Oral. So two quotes of joy stand out for me particularly and offer examples of the deep influence that she had on the book. And I so wish that she had allowed Jack to put her name on it. But I understand her reasons for declining that. Um, so one of the quotes came from Dr. Glyer's Mythlore article about her, in which she said, quote, life is too intense to be endured with logic alone. <laughs> I just wonder how often she said that to Jack. <laughs> when he asked for a logical explanation of her behavior and what she's just done. Yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh. And I think that was a crucial realization that she brought to Jack's life generally and to Oral's story in particular because Oral was torn between the teachings of the fox and the mysteries that she herself had experienced. And then the other quote was in a letter to Chad Walsh, written on January 27th, 1950. She says, quote, but now that I come to think of it, something has changed. And I'll bracket here to say this was since her experience of God when she was standing beside her when she was in crisis over her husband's breakdown. So back to Joy's words. My parents, since my first discovery of, or by, God, had lost their old power to hurt me. They were still able to rattle me a bit. 
So you compare that to Oral's thought when she first appeared veiled before her father and he mm. commanded her to take it off. Oral thinks, quote, it was then I first found what that night on the mountain had done for me. No one who had seen and heard the God could much fear this roaring old king. It's not a word for word correspondence, but by golly. <laughs> it definitely has echoes. Yeah, I think so. Andrew still hasn't quite managed to convince me that Till We Have Faces is Lewis be Lewis's best book, but I will say it is the one that I am still very much actively exploring despite having read it about probably eight times at this point. <laughs> I think it rewards exploration. I mean, I taught it, I can't tell you how many times, and every time there was something new and throughout different points in my life, different things would come to the fore. Um, it's a rich, rich, rich book. How did your students find it? Puzzling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly even baffling. We had some interesting discussions. Um, again, remember, we were looking at the lens of women as represented in myth and fairy tales. So a lot of our discussions revolved around gender roles, interpretation of gender, issues of gender. Um, the fact that Oral had to drive the woman out of her in, uh, rather offended more than a few people, um, but that this was a reflection of the culture that she lived in and the time she lived in. It's funny, I can't hear that line, drive the woman out of her, without thinking of two movies, hmm. uh, Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel. <laughs> yeah. Because I hated yep. Captain Marvel. I thought it was a terrible movie for the very simple reason that she was just a cardboard cutout. Interesting. There was, there was no real content to her character. Oh. She was, seemed to never be weak. She was always strong. You know, she always had the ability to defeat any enemy. Mm. Uh, she didn't seem to be overly moved by anything. Whereas Wonder Woman, mm. she has real emotional range. She is gutted when yeah. she sees yeah. death and yeah. destruction. She mourns for people. She is weak, quote unquote. But from that comes great strength and a far, far better movie. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, maybe Wonder Woman is Psyche and uh, Captain Marvel is Oral. Okay. Listeners, if anyone wants to write fan fiction where you take that <laughs> and run with it, I want to read it. <laughs> well, I think you could make a case for that because, again, consider her context. Captain Marvel was raised in a profoundly militaristic culture mm -hmm. seemed it the whole reason for their existence was to wipe out another people from the face of the earth and for her to have not only accepted but defended those very people against her former i mean she did a lot of growing in a very short time i'll put it that way and i think we really see her love in how she behaved prior to her kidnapping for lack of a better word mm. by the by the Cree because she had the energy of the crystal within her and that's all i think they really wanted her for was to figure this thing out yeah one way or the other and they were terrified of her and that's why they slapped the control pads on her and um take it from there and who was the person that primarily formed her it was the computer exactly. which is like the fox a logician yes 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 10 points to your house. Wow. Okay. Maybe I, you should write the fanfic. You you might have made me take a second look at Captain Marvel. I, I mean, I'm fixing it in my head. Okay. 
but it's a more interesting movie when you start thinking of it in those terms. Well, I have to say the single most moving line to me, and I think the vast majority of women who heard this line would stand up and share is, I've been fighting my whole life with one hand tied behind my back. Mm. What happens when I'm finally free? Mm. And maybe one of the things that can happen is you find you don't have to fight. But that's way, way, way down the road. <laughs> well, before we wrap up, in your most recent email, you said that you had enjoyed Barfield Month, which I was very pleased about because that was an awful lot of work to try and do a month about an author I didn't know that well at the beginning. But you said that it also helped you look at Till We Have Faces a little differently. So I'd love to know, what did it change? Well, let me just say thank you for every minute of that work because it was superb. I really, really enjoyed the series. What I heard made me see Oral's people in a new light. I saw them as people at the cusp of the transition from the more unitive or Barfieldian, if you like, approach to spirit into a more analytical intellectual approach, which mm. was the one that Lewis excelled in. If you think of the old priest's words, I, King, have dealt with the gods for three generations of men, and I know that they dazzle our eyes and flow in and out of one another like eddies on a river, and nothing that is said clearly can be said truly about them. Holy places are dark places. It is life and strength, not knowledge and words that we get in them. Holy wisdom is not clear and thin like water, but thick and dark like blood. Why should the accursed not be both the best and the worst? Compare that to the new priest, Arnhem, trying to explain why the spring festival so moves people. He uses a symbolic and analytical approach to spirit, which he equates with natural processes. And he claims that the reason for this is, quote, to hide it from the vulgar. But this just won't do for Oral. She has seen, she has experienced a God. And she can no longer accept even her beloved Fox's Hellenic approach of reason and analysis. And then the peasant woman comes into the ugly statue and she pours bird's blood on it and weeps face down before it and then rises comforted. Present in the darkness, the pain, the loss is comfort, even love. A remarkable both and which I think Barfield would have recognized as a reflection of the unity of early language. Krua is breath, is spirit, is wind. Holy places are indeed dark places because they contain a unity, both blinding light and a deep but dazzling darkness which we with our limited vision cannot yet see in its entirety, not until we have faces. Wow. I still cannot quite get my arms around all that Barfield thought, but I certainly hear alarm bells going off in my head much more often and thinking about poetic diction in particular, mm. even if I can't fully, fully articulate it. And I, and I, I, I do like that connection that you just made there. Well, I haven't read Poetic Diction either. I mean, I've all I know about Barfield, I learned from your podcast and from the few references in, in and around Tolkien and Lewis and so forth. But 
just that one realization of the interpenetration of of all these words really mean the one thing. Hmm. Because when you are approaching divine from that other place, words do fall away. How could they not? I mean, consider what you are contemplating. Yeah. How can my finite human brain come up with something even more finite, a word, a word to describe all that? Yeah. It creates in you a desire to sort of reach across the veil, even if you're not entirely sure what you're reaching towards. How could you possibly be <laughs> know what you're reaching towards? No, and, and that's, I think, where expressions like holy terror come in or awe-filled. Hmm. Yes, it is filled with awe because, oh my goodness, all that, all that, all that. And I think I can put a name to it? Really? Or reduce it to a nice syllogism. Mm, yes. Or just some simple symbolism. Right, right. And I think Barfield might even argue there is no such thing as simple symbolism. <laughs> probably. Probably he would. Yeah. Um, at least if it's symbolism done right, then it can't be simple, can it? It's, it's richer and more meaningful even the, than the words denote. Yeah. And the more time I spend contemplating it, the richer and the vaster it becomes. And I'm using it, which unfortunately in our English language is a very negative kind of a, of a word because it's definitely not an it. I mean, the I, thou. Yeah. Um, beloved is my best word right now. And I fully expect that that will change because I still don't have my face. <laughs> not entirely. <laughs> well, Marilyn, thank you for joining me today. Uh, it has been wonderful. I'm, I'm, I hope you feel slightly exercised that some of, some of the strong feelings that you were having about <laughs> till we have faces have, have been released and set out into the world for other people to think about and ponder. Indeed, they have. Thanks to you. Well, thanks again. And thank you to all of our patron supporters and especially our top tier supporters that make all of this possible. Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. As always, we can be found on our website, pinesofjack.com, as well as on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, MySpace. And please join us next time on the next episode, when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>